0: I'm so glad you've joined us for Chow at Home. Tonight we conclude this series as Father Jonathan shows. All of this content finds its culmination in the person and work of Jesus. And I'm glad you've enjoyed walking with us through this series. We're committed to continue providing biblically faithful digital content for you in the weeks ahead. Look for a new study to be coming in January. As we enter into this new liturgical season of Advent, the start of the Christian liturgical year this coming Sunday, I encourage you to come and to invite your friends and neighbors to join us for our Advent lessons and carol services at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 5 p.m. This beautiful service holding up readings of Scripture that lead us up to the Nativity and then all the carols and traditional music that comes together. It's a beautiful and wonderful and very Anglican way and unique way to begin this season of Advent. We encourage you to come and join us for this important part of our life together. Finally, as you have been enjoying these series and as you continue to, many of you return to in-person worship with us or continue joining us in live streaming, we encourage you to remember Uh, the call from God upon your lives to support generously the mission and work of Christ Church. We are in that home stretch of the year where we always are reminding our parishioners of the needs financially for us to end the year well so we can enter into 2021 with a fresh start and ready to begin an exciting new ministries. We're living in a strange and difficult season. We're living in a time where we're rethinking many things about what church looks like, but The basics have not changed. The unchanging nature of the gospel remains. And we're committed as we go into 2021 to continue to be a beacon and a lighthouse here in Plano and for the whole North Texas community and from digital content to be providing this much broader than even Texas. So please pray. Ask the Lord what he's placing on your heart to make a year-end gift to support the work and ministry of Christ Church Plano. As we prepare for tonight's study, let us pray for peace in our world. Prayer number 28 out of our prayer book. Almighty God, from whom all thoughts of truth and peace proceed, kindle, we pray, in the hearts of all people the true love of peace, and guide with your pure and peaceable wisdom those who take counsel for the nations of the earth, that in tranquility your kingdom may go forward, till the earth is filled with the knowledge of your love, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Enjoy tonight's study.
1: For the past 11 weeks, we've been studying wisdom, biblical wisdom, together. And we've been doing it by looking at three books of the Old Testament, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. In our study of Proverbs, we learned that wisdom is constantly calling out to us, that wisdom is inviting us to a life of real flourishing, teaching us how to live well, how to live, as I put it, with the grain of creation. That wisdom wants to teach us the truths we need to know, teach us the characters and the virtues that we need to develop. But then when we looked at Ecclesiastes, we learned that living wisely means not only living well in a world that is designed and ordered and good, but also reckoning with the devastation of creation as we experiencing it now. With recognizing that There is nothing in this life, nothing simply in the world under the sun that can give us true meaning and fulfillment and happiness, learning what it means to fear the Lord. And then we turn to the book of Job, this hard book where we thought about what it means to live well as we suffer, what it means to live well and endure the mystery of human suffering. When we don't have all the answers, that wisdom is not a matter of having all of our answers, all of our questions answered for us, but of developing patience and endurance and hope, even in the midst of pain. This too is a matter of living with the grain of the universe, embracing what it means to be a creature. And so far, all of our discussion of wisdom is centered on the Old Testament and you may have been thinking as we're going through this series, well, what about Jesus? We are Christians, after all. What does all of this have to do with being a follower of Jesus? In fact, biblical wisdom has everything to do with Jesus. First, it has to do with Jesus because when we read and study these scriptures of the Old Testament, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, We are, in fact, reading and studying the words of Christ, the one who is the word of God. It's like Origen of Alexandria says when he talks about the scriptures. By the words of Christ, we do not mean only those which formed his teaching when he was made man and dwelt in the flesh. For even before that, Christ, the word of God, was in Moses and the prophets. This has been a core conviction of the church throughout its history. It's what's behind our statement every time we read scripture and respond with the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, that we are confessing that the Old Testament, these inspired scriptures are in fact the words of the word of God, who is Christ. But even more than that, the New Testament understands Jesus himself Not only to be the one who inspires these scriptures, but who is, in fact, the wisdom of God. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power and wisdom of God. In the fourth century, Athanasius of Alexandria, that great defender of Trinitarian orthodoxy, Athanasius used this reference to Christ as the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians to explain why it is that the Son had to to become human in the first place. Here's what Athanasius said because the world was not wise enough to recognize God in his wisdom. God determined to save those who believe by means of the foolishness of the message that we preach. He caused the true wisdom himself to take flesh, to become man, to suffer death on the cross, so that all who believed in him might be saved. Jesus then is not only the author of wisdom, He is wisdom itself in human form, wisdom taken flesh. He is the one standard by which all other wisdom must be judged. So what do we learn then about wisdom from Jesus himself in the New Testament? And how does this compare to the wisdom that we find in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job? This is what I want to focus on tonight in our lesson, I want to think about the life and teachings of Jesus in relationship to each of the books that we have discussed, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. How is Jesus the proverbial sage? How is Jesus depicted, like in Ecclesiastes, as the preacher of vanity? And finally, what do we learn about Jesus, the wisdom of God, as the righteous sufferer? Now, let's begin by talking about Jesus, the proverbial sage. Now, remember, in the book of Proverbs, we hear two voices calling out to us, Lady Wisdom and Madam Folly, and both of them promise a life of goodness and happiness. Both of them appeal to us on the level of desire. And like them, we see in the Gospels that Jesus, too, is a teacher constantly calling people to follow him, to follow his way, to take on his yoke and the way of his kingdom. And what is it that he's offering to people? Lady Wisdom appeals to desire. And what does Jesus say? In his parables, he says that the kingdom, his way of living is like a pearl, a pearl of great price, more valuable than anything else we own. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his followers that he himself is the bread of life, that if they come to him, they will never hunger, they will never thirst, that he alone has the truth which can set them free. So you see, Jesus is not just calling out like Lady Wisdom. He's also appealing to our desire, telling us that he is the one who can give us a life of true happiness. And maybe the greatest example of this that we read is in the Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew 7. As one scholar recently put it, the Sermon on the Mount is Christianity's answer to the greatest metaphysical question that humanity has always faced. How can we experience true human flourishing? What is happiness, blessedness, Shalom. And how does one obtain and sustain it? So the sermon you see is like the speech of wisdom in Proverbs. It's teaching us the secrets to a life well-lived, the secrets to true happiness. Think about how Jesus begins the sermon, talking about blessed, happy are those who, and then look at how he ends the sermon in Matthew chapter 7 talking about wisdom and foolishness. Everyone then, he says, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And Jesus here in the Gospel of Matthew, just like in the other gospels, Jesus is the wise sage. Jesus is the brilliant teacher, the one who can tell us how to live a truly flourishing life. I I think the problem is that for many of us, even those of us who are Christians, we don't really often think of Jesus that way. We often think of Jesus as our savior, the one who can save us from judgment, save us from our sin. And we think of Jesus sometimes as our shepherd, the one who looks out for us, who loves us and cares for us. And sometimes we think of Jesus as Lord, as the one who commands us and demands obedience, but we do not often think of him as a sage or a teacher. Uh, The philosopher Dallas Willard, he called this the great omission, kind of like the great commission. This is the great omission because we omit discipleship, which means learning at the feet of Jesus, constantly listening to his words, hearing his words and doing them, that we often omit this from Christianity. And why is that? Uh, Willard says it's because at the end of the day, we don't really believe Jesus has the best advice for how to go about our day-to-day lives. Listen to how he puts it. In our culture and among Christians as well, Jesus is automatically disassociated from brilliance or intellectual capacity. Not one in a thousand will spontaneously think of him in conjunction with words such as well-informed, brilliant, or smart. Far too often, Jesus is regarded as hardly conscious. He is taken as a mere icon. He is perhaps fit for the role of sacrificial lamb or alienated social critic, but little more. What lies at the heart of the astonishing disregard for Jesus found in the moment to moment existence of multitudes of professing Christians is a simple lack of respect for him. He is not seriously taken to be a person of great ability. And yet, that is precisely how the Gospels and how the New Testament as a whole present Jesus to us. He's not just our Savior, Jesus is the wise sage the one whose words hold the key and the secrets to true freedom and to a life of true flourishing. The question for us is, are we seeking his wisdom? Do we consider it, like the voice of lady wisdom, to be more valuable than gold or silver, to be more valuable than anything else we can find? Is it a pearl of great price to us, a treasure hidden in a field, Do we listen and strain to hear the voice of Jesus so that we can live the life that he has taught us to live? So that's Jesus, the proverbial sage. But we also have Jesus when we compare him to the book of Ecclesiastes, as Jesus comes across as the preacher of vanity. How how does the wisdom of Jesus compare to the wisdom of Kohelet? the preacher in Ecclesiastes. And your first instinct might be to recognize and to think of differences that exist between the two. Coelette, often despaired, but Jesus offers his followers hope. And Coelette promoted a kind of carpe diem, seize the day philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry. And this seems at odds with Jesus's teaching. But remember, One of Coalette's main contributions, I said, is that he helps us recognize the futility, the vanity, the emptiness of pursuing happiness under the sun, investing all of our hopes for meaning and significance in this life. And Jesus, he also does the same thing in his own teaching. Think, for instance, about the vanity of wealth. What is it that Jesus says in his great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, about wealth? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. And also, think about what he says just after that No one can serve two masters. You must choose will you serve God or will you serve wealth? Or, Think about Luke chapter 12, where Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool. It's all about this man who has a rich and plentiful harvest. So great, in fact, that he has more grain than he knows what to do with. So what does he do? Well, he, he tears down his old barns and his old silos and he builds new ones just so that he can store his great wealth that he has worked for. And he tells himself at the end of this, soul You have goods laid up for many years. Now he has found true happiness. And what is it, Jesus says? What is God's judgment on this? Well, God says to this man, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This sounds very similar to the words of Kohelet, who also looks out on the world of wealth and recognizes that we too, all of us, no matter whether you are wealthy or poor, all will die. And therefore, simply building up wealth will never bring the happiness that we seek. So Jesus has much in common with Kohelet. And these comments on wealth, these are not alone. They're not the only things that Jesus has to say. On numerous occasions in the Gospels, we read about Jesus saying things that subvert the main visions of happiness in the culture of his day, whether it was wealth or honor, power, and not just in his speech, not just in what he says. The very way that Jesus lives is a kind of rejection, a living rejection of wealth and power and glory. In fact, this has led some scholars who study the historical Jesus to compare him to the cynic philosophers of the days of Greek and Rome, philosophers like Diogenes, who went about in their teaching and life rejecting the main cultural visions of the good life and of flourishing. In fact, one scholar goes so far as to say that when you compare Jesus to some of these Cynic philosophers and see the similarities, Jesus and his followers seem like just a band of hippies in a world of Roman yuppies. But this is not quite accurate. Jesus wasn't just starting a countercultural movement. Rather, like Coelette, he was calling attention to the futility of pursuits of happiness in the present world. He wasn't telling his followers that happiness couldn't be found, but that they needed to focus their attention on the eternal life, the eternal goods of the kingdom. That was the treasure hidden in the field, not to get distracted by the vain and futile goods that they were being offered in this world under the sun. And it wasn't just that Jesus wanted to reorient the imagination of his followers to their own good and get them to look toward eternity, but also that he wanted them to recognize the eternal good of their neighbors, those they interacted with. In a sermon that he preached called The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis talks about this. He talks about how Jesus focuses our attention Not on a rejection of happiness, but on true eternal happiness and glory. And he talks about how it changes the way that we relate to those around us. Listen to what Lewis has to say. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Like Kohelet, then, Jesus is a preacher of vanity. He teaches us how to live well, precisely by directing our attention to the futility to the emptiness, to the vanity of things that we so often set our sights on, things that moth and rust destroy. And instead, by directing our attention to the eternal life that awaits us, those of us who are in the kingdom of God, and to the eternal life of our neighbors. Jesus is also, though, similar to Old Testament wisdom when we compare him to the book of Job. Jesus is the righteous sufferer. You know, it's very interesting if you look at the way that Christians have read the book of Job throughout time, all the way back to Gregory the Great in the fifth century, they have recognized that in the person of Job, we actually find a kind of prophetic type of Christ, someone in the Old Testament whose story actually foretells and symbolizes what we will experience in Jesus. And maybe this shouldn't surprise us because there are a number of similarities between Job and Jesus. After all, like Job, Jesus is portrayed as the righteous sufferer. In all of the gospel accounts that we have of him, it's clear that Jesus is suffering opposition, slander, violence, pain, and all of it, he's suffering as someone who does not deserve it. He suffers as an innocent sufferer. And it's not just physical pain either. Like Job, Jesus suffers abandonment from those who were closest to him and accusations of guilt that are false. And Jesus, therefore, like Job, serves as a kind of model of suffering. He teaches us how to live well and to live wisely by modeling what it means to suffer well. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. This is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this moment where Jesus is praying in the garden, anticipating the pain and the death it is to come, asking his father to take the cup of suffering from him. In the Gospel of Luke, we hear that he is praying with such fervor and zeal, with so much agony that. His sweat is coming out like drops of blood. Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. But even as he is praying that his suffering might be taken away from him, he also entrusts himself to his father. What does he say? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup, but not what I will, but your will be done. Jesus endures suffering, even when his father doesn't speak to him in that moment, he offers himself up. And then you also have this other moment in his passion, which which is often called the cry of dereliction. It's what Mark records as one of the last words of Jesus on the cross as he is dying. What does he say in Mark chapter 15, verse 34? At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here we hear an echo of the voice of Job. Jesus giving voice not only to the excruciating pain that he is suffering, but in his sense of complete abandonment and isolation. But it's, it's not just a testimony of pain a crying out, a feeling of being forsaken. Even in this cry, there is also something that teaches us wisdom, because Jesus is modeling the response of one who has learned to endure in hope and in faith, even in the moment of greatest suffering. You see this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's actually a quotation from a Psalm, Psalm 22. It's an allusion to this psalm, and it's the psalm of a righteous sufferer who is experiencing the silence of God, like Job is not having his questions answered, but it's not a psalm of despair that Jesus quotes. If you read on, even in the midst of pain, the psalmist in Psalm 22 holds on to faith and the deliverance of God. For instance, the psalmist says, But you, O Lord, crying out, be not far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. And then looks forward in hope to God's deliverance. I will tell of your name. In the midst of the great congregation, I will praise you. This attitude of the psalmist, which is an attitude that knows how to endure suffering and endure God's apparent silence without giving up hope in the goodness of God. This is what Jesus is alluding to when he cries out from the cross. And this is what Hebrews 12 has in mind when it tells us to imitate the faith of Jesus. Jesus as the model sufferer, the one who shows us what it looks like to live through suffering well. So that's one way that Jesus helps us in our suffering, much like Job, by teaching us how to suffer. But Jesus also helps us in our suffering in another way. I remember God's answer to Job out of the whirlwind. I suggested there that God does not answer the question of why to Job when he asks, Why am I suffering what I am? But instead, he responds, by showing up, by saying, here I am. God did not, though, just come in a whirlwind. God ultimately comes to us in the person of his son, in Jesus himself. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel, in our suffering. This reminds me of a poem by Anne Weems. Here's what she writes. Jesus wept. And in his weeping, he joined himself forever to those who mourn. He stands now throughout all time, this Jesus weeping, with his arms about the weeping ones. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He stands with the mourners, for his name is God with us. Jesus wept. Of course, this doesn't answer all of the questions we have about our suffering, It still doesn't answer the question of why. It still doesn't solve what C.S. Lewis called the problem of pain, but Jesus as the righteous sufferer, he, in his own life, embodies wisdom by teaching us what it means to suffer well, and by also giving us the assurance of God's presence. Jesus is God with us, even in our darkest moments. I wanna end tonight by returning where we began this study. What is wisdom and why should we seek it? That's the question I asked the first week. And I think that there are a number of significant themes that have emerged over this study. One is, just an answer to the question of what is wisdom, wisdom is the art of living well. Wisdom is not just a matter of intelligence Or knowledge, or having the right opinion about something. But it's a matter of living well, a life of true flourishing. And we see this in the life of Jesus, who both models wisdom and who teaches us what we need to know in order to live well. Wisdom is also, as I said, living with the grain of creation it's living God's way in God's world. It's what we need to do to be what we are created to be, to be human beings, as Irenaeus put it, fully alive. But also, we live with the grain of a creation, not just that is ordered and good, but also with a creation that's fallen. And as both Ecclesiastes and St. Paul say, as a creation that is futile and is yearning for its redemption. And wisdom is a way of life that recognizes both the goodness and the futility, as well as the ongoing redemption of the world and lives in hope and in expectation of that final redemption. Finally, wisdom remember. Wisdom begins with a fear of the Lord. That's how the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs began, by telling us that the starting point of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's how the book of Ecclesiastes ended by telling us that when everything is said and done, the one thing we must keep in mind is to fear the Lord. This, you could say, is what the person of Job actually learns throughout his experience of suffering what it truly means to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is to recognize our own limitations to recognize our need, to to distrust ourselves, to distrust our own wisdom and our own insight, to seek wisdom from God. For us, it means to listen closely to the words of Jesus, the one who is the proverbial sage, the one who is the preacher of vanity, the one who has modeled suffering for us and is God with us here are some discussion questions for you. Number one, what is one of your biggest takeaways from this study of wisdom? What is one question you still have about how to live well today? Number two, what role does the wisdom of Jesus play in your day-to-day life? How could you listen more closely to the teaching of Jesus? Number three, if Jesus were living in North Texas today, What visions of the good life do you think he would want to call into question? How would his life be different from others? And finally, how might the suffering of Jesus speak to our own experiences of pain and suffering? I want to thank you for joining with me tonight in this study of Jesus as the embodiment of wisdom. I hope that you've profited from it as much as I have. And I pray that God uses this study to help all of us listen more closely to the voice of Jesus and to live the life that he intended, the way of his kingdom, and to find true happiness through that.